This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. ER Vet on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Justine Lee, and I'm an emergency critical care veterinary specialist and toxicologist. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today, we're going to be talking about feline lower urinary tract disease with Dr. Garrett Pachtinger. He's a fellow board-certified emergency and critical care specialist, and he works at the Veterinary Specialty and Emergency Center in Levittown, Pennsylvania. Dr. Pachtinger, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much, Dr. Lee, for having me. I'm excited to be part of the radio world and uh, happy to help in any way I can. All right. So I'm going to talk about and ask you a bunch of questions about this disease, which is sort of a mouthful, feline lower urinary tract disease, or what we abbreviate and call flute D. So this is actually one of the most common emergencies we see in male cats. And I was wondering if you could just Step back and tell us a little bit about it. You know, what breeds of cats or age of cats get this and what the heck it is. That's a really common question. And as you described, FLUTD or feline lower urinary tract disease to me is really not a diagnosis in a sense that it doesn't tell me the specific cause or etiology of what's going on. It really just encompasses a lot of different things that can result in lower urinary tract disease in cats. And when I talk about lower urinary tract disease, I'm not talking so much about, for example, the kidneys or the tube that connects the kidneys to the bladder, the ureter. I'm really referring to more of the bladder and the urethra, where we see signs that are very similar to what you would expect if I said a urinary tract infection. Many people understand what signs you would think of if you have a urinary tract infection. You may have a burning sensation when you urinate, you may have discolored or bloody urine, or you may feel like you have an increased frequency to urinate. So you feel like you have to pee, you go to the toilet and just a couple drops come out, and it's that kind of like burning and irritation sensation that keeps making you think you have to go to the bathroom. And while it's very hard for me to ask my feline patient, hey, does it burn when you pee? All of the other signs really make a lot of sense when we think about a urinary tract infection. But like I said before, a urinary tract infection is not the only cause. Again, FLUTD really encompasses fluted, really encompasses a whole host of other causes, whether it be a urethral plug, meaning they have a combination of crystals and cells and inflammation and debris. You can be anatomic. For example, if there's a stricture or closure down on their urethra, they don't have as good of a flow and there's some irritation there. You can have stones. So both male and female cats can not only have crystals, but bladder stones that can cause irritation if they're small enough to be urinated out, or they can actually cause a blockage, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And again, yes, a urinary tract infection, really uncommon, can be cancer, although cancerous cells can also plug up the urethra. And finally, we can get into what we call idiopathic cystitis. And really, idiopathic is a big fancy medical term for we don't know. 
meaning we run the appropriate tests. There's no obvious underlying cause, yet they have these signs that we are going to refer to as the lower urinary tract signs. Again, the frequency to urinate, the discolored urination, and some of the other signs, the irritation, inflammation, and discomfort. Now, Justine, Dr. Lee, like you asked, what are the breeds, or I should say even more importantly, probably the ages in which we see this? Really, we can see this at any age, these signs, because the signs themselves are not specific for one cause. Again, feline lower urinary tract disease really just talks about all of these causes that can mimic the lower urinary tract signs. The discussion that I like to have regarding age, though, is that younger cats are a little bit more predisposed to certain things and older cats are more predisposed to other things. And the line I draw on the sand is probably somewhere around that 10 year of age mark. Cats that are less than 10 years of age, and if I make it an easy conversation, Let's say you have a four-year-old male castrated domestic short hair. Four-year-old young cats are most likely going to have that idiopathic cystitis, meaning we don't know why, especially the male cats. As they age and as they get greater than 10 years of age, the two things that I would put on the list are going to be cancer but more commonly urinary tract infection for a variety of reasons as we age our body is just more susceptible to urinary tract infections. The other comment I'll make is not so much on age or breed, but is more on, I guess, gender, for example, meaning a male cat versus a female cat. And it's a very similar conversation that a physician may have with a male or female patient where anatomically female patients are just more prone to urinary tract infections. The same thing applies in people. It's just a simple fact, not fun to think about, but a simple fact. And the reason is most of these infections are ascending infections, meaning they're from the outside world to the inside world. And if you think about male versus female anatomy, the female vaginal urethra is shorter and wider compared to the male penile urethra in both humans and cats just the same. So it's just less common to have a bacterial urinary tract infection track all the way up the male cat's penis and urethra into the bladder, again, as compared to that female cat or person just the same, where again, that vaginal urethra is shorter. So it's a shorter distance for that bacteria to come up and the urethra is also wider, making it an easier infection. So females in general, more predisposed to urinary tract infections, and an older patient is more prone to urinary tract infections as compared to likely healthier, younger patients like young male cats. All right, so let me just get this straight. So one of the reasons why I asked you on the show today as a criticalist is I know, you know, we both did our residencies at University of Pennsylvania. We saw a ton of these cases where, you know, two to four year old, relatively young, really overweight cats would come in for this feline lower urinary tract disease. And so just to summarize, it's rarely a urinary tract infection in males. And I should say it's young, obese males. And if it is a urinary tract infection, while it's rare, that's more likely to be a cat. Now, I hate cleaning my cat's litter box. I always believe that you should have N plus one litter boxes. So if, if you have two cats, you need two plus one or three litter boxes. And that doesn't mean that you can't scoop less. You still have to scoop every day. And that's the one big mistake that I see cat owners making. They oftentimes don't scoop the kitty litter box every day. So they're not sure if their cat is urinating enough. So 
classically, when cats come in with feline lower urinary tract disease, do you mind just briefly talking about some of the signs you're going to be showing? What signs should a pet owner look for? First of all, I will say I completely agree with your comment about litter boxes. The other comment I will make is recognize your cat's litter box habits. I know when I brought a second cat into the house, I went out and purchased another litter box, but this litter box was different. It had a cover with one of those kind of back and forth little protective covers so the cat would have to push a little door in to get into the litter box. And all of a sudden, one of my cats started peeing outside the litter box and pooping outside the litter box. And so you may need to not only get more litter boxes, but recognize covered versus uncovered shields or even the types of litter that they have. Now, going back to your comment, Dr. Lee, about what signs, I will say there's a variety of different signs that you should look for. The first in general is just straining. Now, I make it a point to say not urinary straining or not constipation, because for me, part of the triage, which means patient assessment comes even before the patient may enter the hospital. The pet parent calls up and says, I'm worried my cat is constipated. What can I give them over the counter to make this better? And the first light bulb that pops into my head is constipation really is not that common. Many of us just assume it's constipation for a variety of reasons, but many pet owners actually think because my cat is posturing, whether it's in or out of the litter box, they sit up, they look like they're trying to poop, like they're trying to defecate, well, they must be constipated. In a vast majority of those cases, not only are they not constipated, but they have a life-threatening condition potentially where it's actually a urinary issue. So the first thing to remember is any type of straining especially in a young male cat, you should first think to yourself, urinary tract, not constipation. So straining. Other things that you're going to watch for are going in and out of the litter box. Sometimes they go in and out of the litter box and it's behavioral, but if that's not the typical behavior of your cat, you question why are they going in and out of the litter? So look in the litter. Are there normal wet spots in there? Are there much tinier, smaller wet spots or even bloody or discolored urine. If you see especially a young male cat going in and out of the litter box for a period of let's say half an hour or hour, look to see if there's urine or wet spots in there. If there are no wet spots or tiny wet spots, very important to contact your veterinarian to find out what you should do next. Other things to watch for, general signs of malaise or discomfort. I know, you know, it's again, not fun to think about, but something not life-threatening. You go on a long car trip and you don't want to stop at the rest stop to go to the bathroom. If your bladder is big and full, how do you feel? Do you want to have a big meal? No, you probably don't want to eat or drink at all. So you have a decreased appetite. If they truly can't urinate and some toxins build up in their body, you can have not only lack of appetite, but vomiting. They can sometimes vocalize, and it's not the typical healthy meow that your cat normally does. It's that gut-wrenching, guttural yowl just from discomfort and pain. Other things you will see them do is you'll see them kind of excessively groom their genital area. They're licking themselves often from discomfort or irritation. And sometimes in male cats, their penis can actually protrude or show out of their sheath because it's so irritated. So straining, going in and out of the litter box, not wanting to eat, vomiting, excessive grooming, or even that yowling, vocalizing are signs of we often see in urinary tract patients male and female cats, but especially very concerning in our young male cats. 
You know, the only other few signs I would add include urinating in weird spots. And so when we see signs of feline lower urinary tract disease, sometimes your cat will actually strain right in front of you. So literally they'll go into the bathtub, squat down several times, or if there's a plastic bag in the living room, they'll actually try to urinate in front of you. And that's your sign that your cat is telling you, please bring me to the vet. I would also add in occasional vomiting. So, you know, Garrett brought up the great point of not wanting to eat, not wanting to move, making multiple trips to the litter box, but even vomiting once or twice. And, you know, that can be a sign that they're actually in temporary kidney failure from being blocked. So don't forget a few other signs that we can see too. So Garrett, you made a great point in that we have to be able to rule out if it's this idiopathic cystitis or this massive inflammation that looks like a urinary tract infection versus them actually being blocked and not able to urinate. So I know as an emergency critical care specialist, the first thing I'll do on physical exam is I'm going to try to palpate that bladder. And if it's a really big, hard bladder that we can't express, no urine's coming out, how are we going to treat that? What's the main treatment for a feline urethral obstruction or a blocked cat? I completely agree with you. That's the first thing I do as well as I feel their bladder because typically cats that have a non-life-threatening inflammation or infection, think about it this way. They're constantly peeing small amounts, as you said, all over the place in different spots in their litter box, and they constantly feel like they have to pee and they're just peeing small amounts. So typically those cats that come in with a non-life-threatening irritation and inflammation have a small to empty bladder because they're just peeing every couple seconds, every couple of minutes. If I have a cat that comes in with the same signs that we are discussing in and out of the litter box, straining, and I can palpate their bladder. Sometimes it's small and firm, sometimes it's medium and firm, and sometimes it's large and firm. When I teach my students, interns, etc., the important thing to remember is those cats should be able to pee and as a result, pee all over and have a small to empty bladder. The ones that have a palpable bladder, sometimes even small, that's an abnormality. They should be voiding their bladder almost completely. And so if I palpate that bladder and it's medium to large size, firm, painful, and I can't express it, that is to be considered a life-threatening emergency situation of what we call a feline, meaning cat, urethral obstruction. So often their urethra, the tube that exits their bladder to the outside world, is blocked for some reason, whether it's a stone, an infection, a spasm, a stricture, crystals, whatever it may be, they can't urinate. So the first steps that we consider for those patients is to place an intravenous catheter. That often goes in one of their front legs, the vein we call as the cephalic vein. So we put a catheter in their front leg so we can go ahead and first get a small blood sample to test out their electrolytes. And also, so then we have access to give them fluids. The reason we test their blood for electrolytes, and as Dr. Lee mentioned before, their kidney values is because when they can't urinate, important toxins that they normally pee out, unfortunately get stuck inside their body. Their kidney values can go up and acids in their blood can go up, making them feel quite sick. And also, unfortunately, there are electrolyte abnormalities that we can see, notably potassium. And if you have very high blood potassium levels, that can actually slow down and even stop the heart. 
So we go ahead and test their blood and make sure that if there are any serious abnormalities, we can go ahead and start treatment immediately. We can give them fluids for hydration and also dilution of these chemicals and toxins. And we even have medications to counteract the bad effects of potassium to help stabilize and support their heart. Because once we have that full assessment, really the most important thing to do once they are stabilized is to relieve that blockage. And that happens by under sedation or anesthesia, passing a urinary catheter up their penis, up their urethra, and into their bladder to give them a tunnel to urinate again as we try to figure out the underlying causes. But being that this is a life-threatening condition, we don't spend a lot of time right away with tests and other diagnostics for x-rays and other things because we really have to solve this life-threatening blockage first. Once they are then stabilized and unblocked and therefore able to urinate, then we can have a little bit of a sigh of relief and then take our time doing some other tests. All right. Great information. Let's take a short break to get a message from our sponsors and then we'll recontinue with Dr. Garrett Pattinger. Molly, here's your dinner. Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your Cat Tree Tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. I called it elephant skin. It was rough, wrinkly, like a Brillo pad. His hair was falling out in clumps. Petey stopped eating and all his hair fell out. Our golden retriever, Sundance, he scratched incessantly. There was hair all over. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. 859-428-1000. The omega-3 fatty acids. Flaxseed, zinc, alfalfa. The digestive enzymes that are cooked out of regular dog food. Dynavite is nutrition. Within two weeks, the shedding slowed down to almost none. The scratching went away after a few days and... Sundance's coat was starting to get shiny and glossy. It's a 180 turnaround. His skin has cleared up. He is not in pain. If your dog has shedding, dry skin, excessive scratching due to Dynavite. 859-428-1000. 859-428-1000. Dynavite for life. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E oh. dot com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com Welcome back to ER Vet on Pet Life Radio. Really excited to be talking to Dr. Garrett Pachtinger, who's been telling us a lot about treatment for these feline urethral obstruction cats or block cats. 
So like you mentioned, we're going to put an IV catheter in, we're going to do some blood work to make sure they don't have any life-threatening complications like kidney failure or electrolyte abnormalities. And then you mentioned that we sedate them to unblock them. What are some of the complications that pet owners need to be aware of when we're doing this procedure? Because I feel like we do it almost, you know, three to four times a day in a busy emergency room. That's a great question. And the first thing that I tell pet owners is I wish this was an elective procedure and I wish we had alternatives. The reality is, unfortunately, being that it is a life-threatening condition and without treatment, they unfortunately can pass away. We have to be very proactive about either sedation or anesthesia. And as we were mentioning in the first segment, the first thing we do before putting them under sedation or anesthesia is really trying to stabilize them as best we possibly can. And that's why with a catheter in their arm, we give them fluids and and potentially other injections to counteract the negative side effects of the toxins, electrolytes, and chemicals that have built up in their body. Unfortunately, the heart is one of the organs that seems to be very affected by this underlying condition because of all of these toxins that have built up in their body. And so stopping the heartbeat is one of the concerns that we worry about, but that is why many of us try to stabilize them as best as we possibly can. If we're worried about their breathing, for example, or their oxygen levels, then we we can intubate them, meaning putting a tube down their throat just before their lungs into their windpipe, into their trachea, so we can deliver oxygen. And then many of us will also hook them up to an electrocardiogram, an EKG, so we can watch their heart rhythm. Usually while the veterinarian or veterinary team member is doing the unblocking procedure, there is somebody, a veterinary nurse, a veterinary technician that is actually listening to their hearts, feeling their pulses, monitoring that anesthesia or sedation so we make sure there are no complications and setbacks. So we try very hard before putting them under sedation or anesthesia to make sure that we've reversed or at least tried to treat some of these body complications from the chemicals, toxins, and electrolyte imbalances from them being unable to urinate. All right. Thank you. Great information. I know most of the time we use pretty aggressive, like large volumes of IV fluids or intravenous fluids to help flush out their kidneys and flush out those poisons. And most of the time, these cats are hospitalized for about two days. So I oftentimes will also keep them on pain medication. Unfortunately, they have to wear one of those funnel hats because they have a urinary catheter in and we don't want them to mess that up or to lick it or groom that area. And again, they're being treated to make sure that we can flush out their kidneys as best we can. Thankfully, most of the time, the kidney failure is temporary with this disease. Now, do you mind just giving us a couple of hints on how we can prevent this from happening again? That's a great question. And unfortunately, there are some cases where we just don't know exactly what to do. Now, when you go to the veterinarian, there's a good reason they're going to recommend certain tests because we don't know the underlying cause right away. And so I do think it's important if your veterinarian recommends certain tests to consider them. So blood work, as we talked about earlier, will check electrolytes and kidney values. Another important test is to collect a sample of the urine. We want to see in the urine is there evidence of bacteria, a urinary tract infection? Is there evidence of crystal formation? Does that worry us more? Could there be stones? And then your veterinarian may also recommend an x-ray to look for evidence of stones because there are some cases where if there's a stone that got stuck in the penis, in the urethra, and that catheter pushed it back up into the bladder, they may be able to temporarily urinate again. But if that gets pushed back down into the urethra again as they try to pee, 
guess what? They could be back in a urinary blockage situation again. And so as far as preventing it, the first thing I like to do is make sure I'm not missing an underlying cause. Is there an infection and do we need antibiotics? Is there a stone that requires surgery or other therapy? If we go ahead and do all of these important tests, the blood work, the urine sample evaluation, and an x-ray, and there's no obvious underlying cause that we can find, then we go back to what we talked about in our first segment, that idiopathic disease. Idiopathic, again, is a big fancy medical term for no underlying cause that we can identify. And so then we're stuck with this condition that caused a potentially life-threatening problem without an underlying cause. What we do know in these cases is that there are some things to consider to decrease the likelihood. I can't tell you we can, in theory, prevent it because there's not an underlying cause that we know of, but there are many things that we can do to decrease the underlying cause. The first is stress. Is there a stressful situation in your house? Did you change litter box? Did you add other cats to the house? Is there a new pet? Are you doing construction in the house? Is there something that changed which prompted this stressful situation for that cat? The second is try to get them to drink as much water as they will, as much water as they can. It's kind of like the solution to pollution is dilution, that kind of old mnemonic, that old saying, where if we can get them to drink more, they will often pee more and make sure they don't have concentrated urine. That concentrated urine may be higher in crystals or other debris or cells. And if we can get them to have a more dilute urine, they may pee that out more frequently and it may not be able to kind of glom up and get a big ball of crystals, which gets stuck in the urethra. And the final thing I would say is there are several prescription urinary tract diets, which have great studies showing there's a marked decrease in the likelihood of this happening again. And these are typically not over-the-counter diets that you get at the food store, but ones that your veterinarian will recommend. And the first thing I will say about that, or the comment I will make about that is some pet owners say, you know, those prescription diets can be a little bit expensive. Isn't there something else that I could use? And my honest answer is, I don't know there are other diets that I would personally recommend if that were my cat. Number one, the prescription diets, at least in my mind, are studied and there's information behind them. There's statistics. The ones over the counter, I am not sure. And the second comment I will make is, I know that bag of food, that single bag of food that may last two to four weeks is a little bit more expensive than what you purchased over the counter. Unfortunately, not only is this situation life-threatening, but it's also very expensive to bring a cat in for a blockage procedure, a blockage hospitalization. Depending on what hospital you go to, it could be 800, it could be 1,000, it could be 2,000, depending on your location, if it's an emergency room, whatever it may be. And so maybe spending $25 instead of $20 or $18 on a bag of food, while it's a little bit more expensive in the short term, as far as that bag, it could save you a hefty emergency room bill for hospitalization tests. And not to forget, it is life-threatening. So if it goes missed, it could even be fatal. So well worth using a prescription diet that is tried, true, and studied to try to prevent or decrease the likelihood for this happening in the future. 
Great info. The only other thing I was going to add is when it comes to increasing water intake, if your cat has recurrent feline urinary tract disease or has urinary blockages, I'm actually a huge fan of just feeding them canned food from now on. And the main reason why is when you're buying canned food, you're honestly just paying for 70% water, right? And so there's so much more moisture. I'll actually gruel it down with more water just to encourage my cat to drink more. I actually also recommend buying a cat water fountain and making sure to use either filtered water or reverse osmosis water. And the main reason why is if you use well water, there could be higher calcium levels in there. So really important to increase the water intake in your cat. The last thing I wanted to mention is scooping more frequently. I always tell people, not that I want to hype on litter boxes too much, but the dirtier the litter box, the less frequently your cat's going to go into the litter box. They're so fastidiously clean. They only want to go into the litter box maybe once a day instead of three times a day if it's really dirty. And again, this is the reason why we as veterinarians always advocate that you scoop every day. If your cat is only going to the litter box once a day instead of three times a day, those crystals become more concentrated and it makes me more worried that the cat is more likely to get blocked. So do your cat a favor and scoop every single day. I'm actually really lucky. I use a litter robot, which is an automatic litter box, and it automatically scoops it after my cat leaves the box. So it's a little bit harder for me to tell how big the clumps are because it's already scooped. But if, again, if you notice your cat going every five minutes into the litter box, that's an emergency, and that means you need to get to the emergency veterinarian or your veterinarian immediately. Well, that brings us to the end of today's show. Find me at drjustinelee.com, on Facebook at Dr. Justine Lee, or if you have any pet questions, email me at drjustine at petliferadio.com. With that, we're out of time, but we wanted to give a huge shout out and thank you to Dr. Garrett Pachtinger, board certified emergency critical care specialist at Veterinary Specialty and Emergency Center in Levittown, Pennsylvania, and also to Mark Winter, our producer, for making this show possible. See you at the next episode. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.